Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are our top stories. Officials in Tennessee are assessing damage after storms and tornadoes kill at least six people over the weekend. National Mayor Freddie O'Connell calls the destruction heartbreaking. Israel says dozens of Hamas terrorists surrender. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calls it the beginning of the end for the terrorist group. More on the war in Gaza. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill hands in her resignation, this following backlash after her Capitol Hill testimony and seemingly soft response to hate speech on campus. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will visit the White House tomorrow. What's on the agenda with new Ukraine aid hung up in Congress before Christmas break? Elon Musk runs a user poll on bringing InfoWars host Alex Jones back to X after being permanently banned. Does logic or emotion drive your spending habits? A psychologist offers some tips on how to avoid the emotional spending trap and involves not living in the present. Present, find out what it entails. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Monday, December 11th. Yes, and those terrorists really drive a hard bargain. Right. All Palestinian prisoners for the hostages. Yeah, that's 7,000 prisoners in exchange for about 137 hostages. Right. And not to forget that Yahya Sinwar, the brain behind October 7th, essentially, was also released during one of those hostage, uh, hostage deals in 2011. Yeah. So definitely probably learned their lesson. But uh, in today's top news is Tennessee. Officials there are assessing the damage after tornadoes and strong storms tore across the state on Saturday. The storms killed at least six people and injured 50 more. Multiple buildings were also destroyed. Here's the story. Severe storms and tornadoes in Tennessee killed at least six people over the weekend and left a trail of destruction. One tornado was caught on video by an eyewitness as it moved over Madison, Tennessee, causing electrical flashes and an explosion. Oh my God. Video from Clarksville, one of the hardest hit areas, showed wrecked buildings and debris scattered along the road as slow-moving traffic drove by. I hope nobody was in those houses. Officials said three people, including a child, were killed in Montgomery County, where Clarksville is located, and 23 people were being treated at the hospital. Three more deaths were reported in the suburbs of Nashville, according to the city's Office of Emergency Management. Police said a toddler was one of the three victims in the Nashville area. Heartbreaking day. Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell said emergency crews were still working to restore power. We have been working very closely with Nashville Electric Service. They are still trying to restore power to 26,000 Nashvillians. Their crews have been working around the clock uh, to get impacted Nashvillians back online as quickly as they can. In total so far, our responders have identified 22 structures that have collapsed as a result of the storm, and countless others have sustained significant damage. More than 40,000 people in Tennessee were left without power as of Sunday morning, according to the website poweroutage.us. 
And updates from Gaza. Israeli tanks were trying to push further west in their battle against Hamas in and around Han Yunus today. Israel says the city is the main stronghold of the terrorists. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the latest on the war in Gaza. The Israeli military says it has been fighting terrorists house to house in Han Yunus as Israel refocuses its war effort to the south. Han Yunus is the main city in the southern Gaza Strip, with a population of over 600,000. The Israeli military said Sunday that dozens of terrorists had surrendered to Israeli forces. There are a great many terrorists who have surrendered there. And this is a significant thing, because these are signs that terrorists, who are in difficult strongholds, have decided to surrender. This is a very important thing. Footage shows dozens of detainees stripped to their underwear. Israeli officials say that's to make sure they aren't hiding explosives. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu discussed the Hamas surrenders on Sunday, calling it the beginning of the end for the terrorist group. Netanyahu urged more to hand over their guns and not to die for Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. On Friday, the United States vetoed a UN Security Council proposal demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Robert Wood called the resolution a recipe for disaster. A senior Hamas official recently stated the group intends to repeat the vile acts of October 7, quote, again and again and again, unquote. And yet, this resolution essentially says Israel should just tolerate this. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday criticized those who have not forcefully condemned the sexual violence committed by Hamas on October 7th, speaking on CNN. But the uh, sexual violence that uh, we saw on October 7th uh, is beyond anything that, uh, that I've seen either. Meanwhile, over 100 aid trucks reportedly reached Gaza on Saturday. But will ordinary Gaza residents get it? The Israeli Defense Forces published a video on X they say shows Hamas members beating civilians and stealing such aid. And an elderly woman told an Al Jazeera reporter that the aid is being stolen by Hamas. <laughs> Meanwhile, fighting between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon is causing fears of the war spreading. And Syria's army reported it had shot down Israeli missiles fired towards the capital Damascus on Sunday evening. Reuters says the Israeli army declined to comment on the report. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And to get more updates on the war, we are bringing in retired Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. He is also the CEO of a Near East Center of Strategic Engagement. Good morning, Lieutenant Colonel. It's really good to have you this morning. First, it looks like there is definitely some progress there, but um, first I want to know from you, how do you think um, Israel's strategy is working currently in the south of Gaza? Well, good morning. I mean, uh, Israel is doing what it needs to do. Uh, to this date, they've at least knocked out 600 different targets. Um, now, on open source, you may get 300, but at least they've knocked out 600 different targets uh, that are really key infrastructure targets uh, that they have to take out in Gaza. And most of it has come in because of the surrenders that have taken place. 
there's so many surrenders that are taking place on the battlefield that Israel had to call on actually retired uh, intelligence officers to be able to process them, to be able to gather that information. They're using a new AI system that is allowing them now to be able to input that data, get much faster uh, timely target information out and be able to knock out targets that are key and important. And keep in mind that because I, uh, because uh, Hamas has been on the ground, the Hamas headquarters command control really is not getting the information that they would like to get to know what the array on the battlefield is for the Israeli forces. So a lot of the frontline commanders are making the call to surrender on their own. Mm, right. And I want to talk, touch on that a little bit more. But first, we're starting the third month of this fighting. And uh, do you think the progress is going as planned from the IDF's perspective? Yeah, from the IDF perspective, it is. Uh, but keep in mind, again, uh, the individuals that conducted the October 7 attack uh, into uh, uh, Israel itself, uh, those individuals were just children throwing stones at the Israelis and during the 19. Um, 87 to 1993 in Tefada. The Hamas main brigade was established actually in 1991, which is anywhere between 30,000 to 40,000 man personnel. And uh, these individuals went from throwing stones to carrying guns and carrying, uh, you know, RPGs and various different anti-tank missiles uh, for the attack that was conducted. Now, once you arrest them, once they give up themselves on the battlefield, you process them, you have to feed them, you have to uh, you know, find those shelter for them. And that's really at full capacity now for Israeli army. And eventually, I think the 13 nations that actually voted against Israel during the uh, resolution recently at the UN are going to re require those individuals to be released back into Gaza. So this will continue regardless of how this war uh, will end in the future. Mm, understood. And so for um, back to what you mentioned about the Hamas militants surrendering, um, because reportedly they, um, they lost contact to the leaders. These are relatively new images that weren't necessarily seen before in the last two months. So what kind of change do you think this indicates in this war, if, there is, if, if it indicates a change? I think the fact that uh, Israel now has made it into those underground bunkers and tunnels, I know that the Russians were not happy about it recently. There was a meeting between the Israeli government and the Russian government. I think they came to a settlement that uh, allows now a much broader ability for Israel to be able to get into those tunnels and occupy them. Keep in mind, once you go in them and you occupy them, you're not going to be able to give them back. Otherwise, you're going to be able to allow Hamas to reconstitute. I think part of the strategy and plan is, and especially in unconventional warfare, keep in mind, Hamas doesn't have to win the battle. They just don't have to lose it. And as long as they're able to retain any capacity, the biggest piece of the entire discussion during this weekend was when Netanyahu came out and said that we are going to pursue all Hamas leaders wherever they are, and we're going to kill them. Usually Israel doesn't uh, broadcast that, but the fact that he has done so, that means that you're going to go after those Hamas leaders that are U.S. citizens, U.K. citizens, uh, Qatari citizens living in those countries. Some of them actually embedded uh, deeply in some of the institutions of those nations, and you're going to find a way to get rid of them regardless of the method you use. Right. And just a couple, uh, we have a couple seconds left. I want to get in one more question. So senior military officials have said that there were signs of breaking in Hamas. Do you think, what do you think could point to that? Do you think that is the case? Yeah, I mean, they're giving up. But again, keep in mind, Hamas is, an, uh, you know, the ideology behind Hamas is the eradication of the Jews from the sea to the river. That means every single Jew has to be killed. 
you got to get to a point where, regardless of the governments that are in Israel or whoever is leading the Palestinians, the two people in the region have to be able to negotiate together without using a bullet and bombs. Unfortunately, since the establishment of the state of Israel, that has been the reality. Mm. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Sargas Angari. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for your uh, time this morning, though. Anytime. God bless. And fallout from university officials refusing to condemn hate speech. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned Saturday. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has more on the move, which followed a backlash of criticism for her Capitol Hill testimony last week. McGill will remain at Penn's faculty as a tenured professor at Penn Carey Law School and will stay on as interim president until a new interim leader is appointed. McGill had been under fire for months over her handling of anti-Semitism on campus. The final straw was her testimony before Congress last week. McGill struggled to answer questions about whether calls for genocide against Jews would violate UPenn's code of conduct. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. The exchange went viral and prompted a flurry of business leaders and donors to demand that McGill step down. And a bipartisan group of over 70 members of Congress sent a letter to board members of Penn, Harvard, and MIT on Friday. It demanded McGill and her counterparts, who also refused to give a definitive yes or no answer on the question, be removed. One mega-donor, Ross Stevens, threatened to cancel a massive gift, now valued at about $100 million worth of shares, if McGill didn't leave. McGill shared a video apologizing for her actions. I was not focused on, but I should have been. The irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. University of Pennsylvania Board Chair Scott Bach also resigned Saturday. Meanwhile, calls for the resignations of Harvard President Claudine Gay and MIT President Sally Kornbluth have intensified in the wake of McGill's resignation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Students, lawmakers, and religious leaders are denouncing anti-Semitism on college campuses and in their communities. An event yesterday was attended by Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro and Senator Bob Casey. We gather to call out and condemn the evil, the horrific evil of anti-Semitism. That's where we gather. The evil, the darkness, the venom of anti-Semitism has been with us for a long time. Even just in the last couple of years, we've seen the significant rise in incidents of anti-Semitism all across the country. I've seen it here in Philadelphia, where students raised their voices, where students made sure they were heard in the halls of power at their university and leadership was held accountable. The students did that. The gathering took place at a temple in Philadelphia. It came a day after University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned. 
following criticism over her testimony at a congressional hearing. In the hearing, she failed to admit under repeated questioning that calls on campus for the genocide of Jews would violate the school's conduct policy. And switching gears, director Steven Spielberg has announced a project to document the horrors of the October 7th event events. Spielberg told Fox News he was shocked about the events. He announced the upcoming project by USC Shoah Foundation, which he founded. Not since Germany in the 30s have I witnessed anti-Semitism no longer lurking, but standing proud with hands on hips like Hitler and Mussolini, uh, uh, kind of daring us to defy it. I've never experienced this in my entire life. Although Spielberg is not directly involved in the project, he voiced strong support for it. He went on to say that hate has been on the rise in recent years in the U.S. and that hate and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. The project involves gathering hundreds of interviews of survivor accounts following the October 7th massacre. The USC Shoah Foundation is a Holocaust visual history archive founded by Spielberg in 1994. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to visit the White House. What's on the agenda as discussions on Ukraine aid remain stalled in Congress? Former President Trump says he won't testify again in the New York civil fraud case. Hear what, about Trump's, hear what Trump says about his previous testimony and the case against him. President Biden harnessing some star power as he makes a campaign stop in Los Angeles over the weekend. Will that give a boost to his image and finances? A former congressman weighs in. Good to have you back. President Biden is hosting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House tomorrow. It's Zelensky's third visit to Washington since the start of the war in Ukraine. The White House says the meeting is meant to underscore U.S. commitment to Ukraine. It's slated to cover the country's critical needs and to further defense cooperation against Russia's invasion. That includes projects for weapons and air defense systems. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and GOP Leader Mitch McConnell have also invited Zelensky to an all-senators meeting tomorrow morning. House Speaker Mike Johnson is set to meet with Zelensky too. The visit comes as new Ukraine aid package stalls, with time in Congress running out before the Christmas break. Many Republicans want border security policy changes added to any further funding. And now for some campaign analysis, focusing on President Biden's trip to Los Angeles and polls after the fourth GOP debate, we're bringing in Lieutenant Colonel, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who is the executive director of the American Constitutional Rights Union and a former U.S. representative. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, thank you so much for your time. President Biden paid a visit to Los Angeles over the weekend, looking to gain support from the stars in the industry after those strikes ended. Do you think that this will help his image and his campaign finances? See, it looks like we lost connection with Colonel West. Hopefully we'll be able to reconnect with him soon. While we wait, uh, let's move on to former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
who has endorsed former President Trump for the 2024 presidential election. In an interview with CBS, the former speaker also hinted at being open to a position in the Trump cabinet. McCarthy also added that he believes Trump will win if President Biden remains the Democratic nominee. McCarthy also said he's confident that if Biden remains the Democratic nominee, Republicans will gain more seats in the House and win the Senate. McCarthy said he has worked with Trump on many policies and both have an honest relationship with each other. McCarthy's endorsement is the latest of multiple GOP endorsements for the former president. And former President Trump says he will no longer testify in the civil fraud case against him in New York. Trump was expected to testify for a second time today in his own defense after prosecutors questioned him last month. In a Truth Social post yesterday, Trump said he had already provided successful testimony. He again denied any wrongdoing and called the trial election interference. He accused the Attorney General of having no case. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $250 million in damages and wants to bar Trump from doing business in the state. A pretrial ruling already found Trump liable for fraud. The trial will determine the penalties that Trump will need to pay. Trump's defense has been presenting its case with the help of outside experts. The last expert witness is NYU accounting professor Eli Bartoff. He will continue testifying through Tuesday. The Justice Department says former President Trump's federal election trial should proceed as scheduled. Trump's lawyers filed a motion last week to delay the start of the trial after Judge Tanya Chutkin ruled Trump is not immune from prosecution. Trump's lawyers appealed the ruling, saying the trial should not proceed until the appeal is heard. But the Justice Department filed its own motion yesterday. It said only issues related to the appeal should be paused, and the court can move forward on other motions. The federal election case is set to begin in March 2024. And we're bringing back in retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West to talk about Biden's trip to Los Angeles and the aftermath of the fourth GOP debate. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, thank you so much for your time today. Do you think that yeah. Biden's visit to Los Angeles is going to help him bolster his image and help his campaign finances? No, it's not going to help him bolster his image. You know, I live down here in Texas, and when you think about what is going on in the border, the fentanyl drug trafficking crisis, the human and sex trafficking crisis, the uh, lack of law and order that we see on our streets, his visit out there to Hollywood is not going to help him when it comes to the issues. And the everyday American people are still suffering with the inflationary prices for food commodity prices and gas prices. Yes, and this is seen as a move to offset some of those concerns about his low polling numbers and concerns over his mental fitness given his age. Let's talk about the aftermath of the GOP debate. In a Washington Post-Ipsos poll, 30% of respondents said DeSantis won, but the thing is that he didn't really gain any support after that. Why would that be the case? Well, I think that you have seen everyone pretty much so settle in their respective corners. Uh, President Trump has a solid base. I was just looking at the recent polling coming out of Iowa. He is over 50 percent now in Iowa. And I think Ron DeSantis is at 19 and Nikki Haley is 16 percent. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much so a done deal if you want to look at these polls that are out there. But, of course, we still have to see what happens in Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina. But without a doubt, uh, Donald Trump has a very, very commanding lead going forward into the uh, early caucus and those two primaries. Yes, and on that commanding lead, The Atlantic reports that Haley is basically trying to separate herself and so is DeSantis, but they're mostly trying to 
consider themselves as the best person to go up against Trump versus to actually topple Trump's hold. So do you think that these candidates are going to be able to gain any kind of early voting boost in those states? No, I don't think they'll be able to gain any early voting booth boost. Uh, I, I think right now that, like I said, Donald Trump has a very solid base. Uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, you know, two you know successful governors, and Nikki Haley had a good stand as the uh, United Nations ambassador. But right now, Donald Trump has been in that position in the Oval Office. People understood the policies that he put in place. You can disagree about his personality and things of that nature, but folks want to see uh, economic security restored, energy security restored. They want to see us energy independent, energy dominant. But most importantly, when you look at our national security posture and our foreign policy that we have right now, it's a failure. And I think that he has the leg up on those issues. Now, President Biden has grappled with inflation here. But what do you think is going to be the main issue that voters are going to use to decide who should take the White House if there is a rematch between Trump and Biden? I think it comes down to the different aspects of security. Like I said, their economic security, their energy security, it's our national security foreign policy, it's our domestic security. When you think about just uh, what happened this past weekend where uh, illegal immigrants were giving a special line, I believe, out in Arizona so that they could board aircraft, uh, you know, you and I have to show ID in order to get on aircraft. When you see seven to eight, maybe nine million people have come into this country illegally in these last three years of the Biden administration, and you're asking American taxpayers to foot that bill, even the folks in Chicago, uh, in the black communities and minority communities are rising up against this. So I think it's those issues. And I think also education freedom, uh, parental choice and education is gonna be very important as well. We have seen the border crisis overshadow President Biden's leadership, of course, with that crossing in Lukeville, Arizona, actually having to be closed due to that surge. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, the Executive Director for the American Constitutional Rights Union, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. God bless and Merry Christmas. You too. As Human Rights Day marks its 75th anniversary, calls sound out for those left behind. Shining a light on horrific forced organ harvesting, what one doctor says is key in defeating the purpose of the Chinese regime's persecution. And Argentina is heading into this week with a new president. Tens of thousands took to the streets on Sunday to celebrate the inauguration of their new leader. Entity's Arian Pastar was in Buenos Aires. Welcome back. A call to action on the 75th anniversary of Human Rights Day. Yesterday's historic milestone commemorates the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The UN Declaration was made to prevent crimes against humanity after the atrocities and holocaust of World War II. Doctors and experts over the weekend sounded the alarm over failures to put principles into action in countries like China, specifically stopping the Chinese Communist Party's forced organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience. The group Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting is asking more people to speak out. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the call to break the silence. Washington-based medical ethics advocacy group Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting hosted an international roundtable Sunday to focus on challenges putting the principles of universal human rights into action and the horrific crimes of the CCP. All nations and individuals have to reckon with the realities of the Holocaust. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights represented the gap between a humanitarian ideal and living up to it on the ground. 
75 years after the declaration, the panel suggests the international community pause and reflect on who's had their rights trampled on and who's been left behind. Executive Director of the group Dr. Torsten Trey told NTD it's important to understand that the CCP's forced organ harvesting is not about organ trafficking, it's about killing people to harvest their organs. And that's a phenomenon that we only have seen in China. Trey says organ transplants in China spiked exponentially after 1999 when the persecution of Falun Gong started. Chinese authorities estimated at the time that up to 100 million people were practicing Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa. But it was actually only in 2006 when we learned from whistleblowers that uh, the prisoners of conscience, Falun Gong practitioners, were the main source of, uh, for, for forced organ harvesting. Since then, Trey says the CCP has tried to suppress and destroy Falun Gong, with forced organ harvesting and persecution being the regime's ultimate solution. He says the CCP has built a sophisticated network of influence to cover its crimes and uses blatant economic pressure and political threats, along with propaganda, to spread a false representation of what Falun Gong is. They practice uh, Buddhist Qigong and they follow the principles of uh, truthfulness, compassion and forbearance. The doctor says the best thing to do to have an impact is simply break the silence. So if everyone takes a moment to understand what Falun Gong is about, that Falun Gong is about truthfulness, compassion, forbearance, things that we could uh, use very well in these times. Uh, if we learn about this and then speak about it and also understand about the forced organ harvesting and speak about the forced organ harvesting, we basically lift the concealed eradication to the daylight and thus defeat the purpose an independent People's Tribunal in London concluded in 2019 that forced organ harvesting in China has taken place on a significant scale for years, with detained Falun Gong practitioners as the primary source. The persecution in China continues today. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. China's communist regime has announced it will discount entry visa fees for travelers from over a dozen countries starting today. It's also extending the measure until the end of next year. This despite a mysterious pneumonia outbreak that's left hospitals across China overflowing with children. The announcement came during a press briefing last week and involves a 25% fee reduction. Chinese embassies in at least 14 countries, including Mexico, South Korea and Japan, have since stated plans to reduce visa fees for visitors to China. China's foreign ministry announced last month it would offer visa-free entry to six European and Asian countries. These include France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain and Malaysia. The CCP has relaxed entry, fee policy, entry visa policies targeting hundreds of millions of people in nearly two dozen countries over the last two weeks. Moving on to Argentina, Javier Milei is a new president of Argentina. Some describe him as the Argentine version of former President Trump. The Economist takes over the role as Argentinians are desperate for change, battling extreme inflation, which affects the lives of millions. Entity's Arian Pastar was in Buenos Aires on Sunday for Milei's inauguration. Around a million people were expected to be here in Buenos Aires, Argentina today to watch the inauguration of Argentina's new president, Javier Milei. Now, I spoke to some of these supporters and they tell me they have high hopes and expectations for their next leader. Take a look. Generations of corrupt politicians have been robbing from the people of Argentina. 
But Javier Millet brings us a new promise. He brings us happiness. Self-described capitalist Javier Millet won the election with almost 56% of the vote. His opponent had just over 44%. This is the widest margin of victory in a presidential race since Argentina's return to democracy in 1983. I want us to be clear. We are going to begin the rebuilding of Argentina after more than 100 years of decadence, but we must embrace the ideas of freedom. While we will have to endure a period of hardship, we will get through. There is no night that has not been defeated by the day. Before winning the election, Millet proposed radical ways to rebuild Argentina. For example, cutting government spending by abolishing certain agencies. Ministerio de las Mujeres y Género y Diversidad, afuera. Ministerio de Obras Públicas, afuera, aunque te resistas. This comes as Argentina is battling extreme inflation, affecting millions of people, as you can see in this graph. This Miele supporter put the graph into perspective. The U.S. currently has 7% inflation over an entire year. We have 12% in a single month. Our salaries don't keep up with this inflation, so all of a sudden you realize that the things you were able to buy before, you just can't afford anymore. Miele has promised to combat inflation, that's by cutting government spending, abolishing the country's central bank, being more open to using the U.S. dollar and more. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And Millay, in his first act as president, slashed the number of his cabinet ministers in half. He signed a decree of necessity and urgency yesterday, similar to an executive order. The swearing-in ceremony took place behind closed doors, away from the press. Only nine departments were sworn in. Malay ran on a campaign platform proposing a so-called chainsaw plan, promising to drastically reduce the number of Argentina's government ministries. And hopes are high, but questions remain. Can Javier Malay bring significant change to Argentina? NTD's Arian Pastar spoke with Daniel Subsai while in Buenos Aires. He's a constitutional lawyer and former president of the Argentine Association of Constitutional Law. I think that it won't be easy, but anyway, his, I think that his purposes are very important and we can change the re regime, in fact, and to switch from a populist regime to a popular liberal regime. Congress is a big part, of course, so, right? Do you think sure. Congress would be behind Miele's ideas? Well, I hope so, because you know that he has, uh, he got an extraordinary popular vote, but at the same time, he has very few legislators in both chambers, the Senate and uh, the Chamber of Deputies, representatives for the United States. So he will need to make many alliances I think that at the beginning, at least in the first year, he will get the support because uh, particularly most Peronists know what uh, people want and so they don't want to go against this will. Of course Argentina was invited to join yeah. BRICS which contains countries like Russia and China. Russia, of course, has a war going on in Ukraine, while China is very close to Hamas. They have very strong ties. Now, Miele is probably 
taking the exact other way, you know, being close to the United States, being close to Israel. So how can he swing to Ukraine? And to Ukraine, exactly, and not joining the Russia and China side. So how can his win affect the geopolitical situation overall, and maybe specifically these conflicts you're seeing right now? Well, this is going to change completely. It's the first time, you know, that the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, now is in Argentina. It's the first time he comes to a Latin American country. And that is very important to him and to the United States, because most uh, Latin American countries were for Putin, very close to Putin. So for him to come for the first time in Latin America, where he hasn't been supported, is very, very important, I think. Dennis Hapsay, thank you yeah, so much. Yeah. He has some really interesting insights. And as we have heard before, prior, um, in a prior interview here, right, that um, some think, uh, some analysis actually says that maybe Malay is just paving the way um, to initially have that change afterwards with him being in office at this time because the changes would be very big, right? Well, yeah, hopefully some of those difficult measures that he's proposing will pay off for the people of Argentina. That's right. All yeah. right. And stay with us. We're going to take a look at some international headlines really quick. An apparent crash of a U.S. F-16 fighter jet off the coast of South Korea. According to local news sources, the crash happened earlier this morning, around 100 miles south of capital Seoul. The pilot survived after he ejected from the jet and was later rescued. The crash is stoking concerns over safety following the death of eight U.S. airmen in an Osprey aircraft crash last month off the coast of Japan. Spanish police arrested a suspected leader of the world's most important hacker group. The suspect, not named by police, is accused of data breaching, hacking and money laundering through cryptocurrency. The hacker group known as Kelvin Security is allegedly linked to over 300 attacks in over 90 countries during the last three years. Up next, Elon Musk's social media platform X has restored Alex Jones's account. Find out why Musk moved to reinstate him after a permanent ban after the break. Good morning and thanks for staying with us. Elon Musk has restored the X account of InfoWars host Alex Jones. The move followed a poll on X asking users if Mr. Jones should be reinstated on the platform. About 70% of respondents voted yes. This is after almost five years since the InfoWars host was permanently suspended. While Jones's personal X account is restored, it's unclear if his InfoWars account will be restored. Jones was banned because he made statements falsely claiming victims of the Sandy Hook shootings were actors. Musk has tried to reassure users and advertisers that such decisions would be made with the consideration of a content moderation council. The Supreme Court could make a decision this month that would have a major impact on abortion. At the heart of the case are abortion pills and their safety. Entity Zanya Monahan spoke with the lead attorney in the case and a woman who regrets getting a chemical abortion. The case is Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA approved the abortion drug Mifepristone in the year 2000 while imposing conditions to prevent the drug from causing serious medical side effects. 
but the FDA lightened those conditions in 2016. And then in 2021, the FDA removed the in-person doctor visit requirement, paving the way for so-called mail-order abortion, where women can get abortion pills by mail without seeing a doctor. Lead attorney for the plaintiffs in the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine case, Eric Baptist, says lifting the requirement of medical supervision is putting women in danger. When you mail it, you don't meet with a doctor, you don't meet with any medical professional. You go online, you get the drugs, and then you do it yourself. And it's a two-drug regimen. The second drug in this regimen induces labor and delivery. Um, and that's being done without any medical supervision or intervention. And that can lead to severe hemorrhaging and bleeding, requiring blood transfusions in a hospital. Baptist warns about the psychological impact as well. We have heard from many women who have had these chemical abortions in their home where they're not expecting what, what comes out of them because they've been lied to by the abortion industry saying that just it's just tissue. But when they come out, when the baby comes out at seven weeks, 10 weeks, it's fully formed. It has fingers. It has limbs. It has a beating heart. And when they see that and they see realize what they have to do, what they've done to their baby, that leads to long lifetime uh, implications to their psychological health, where, where again, they are having to figure out what to do with that baby, whether do they flush it down the toilet, do they bury it in their backyard, at least so many different problems. That psychological impact is something Elizabeth Gillette knows all too well. Elizabeth got a chemical abortion back in 2010, later regretting it. I wasn't properly counseled. I was not given um, truthful information about what would happen to my body. I um, ended up having the abortion at home and actually holding the amniotic sac with the infant inside and seeing my dead child. Um, I got post-traumatic stress from that, which I still suffer with today. Gillette doesn't feel women are being given clear enough information. They're not being told that there are severe side effects that could happen. They're um, being told that they're going to experience a heavy period. They're not being told the statistics on, um, you know, these severe complications like sepsis or um, the abortions not being complete and then having to go in and get a surgical abortion. They're not being told about emotional or spiritual side effects. Gillette has some words of advice for those considering an abortion. I would definitely say slow down, you know, and take your time because society seems to push abortion as the answer. And it breeds this fear and this sense of urgency that's false. Um, you don't have to get an abortion right away. You can take your time and think about it, first of all. Um, and abortion is really not the end-all fix. It, it, there are severe side effects. There can be physical side effects. We know that there are emotional, spiritual, psychological side effects. NTD reached out to Planned Parenthood for comment multiple times, but they did not respond. Their website says chemical abortion has been used safely in the U.S. for more than 20 years, and that although serious complications are rare, they can happen. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Do you really need that 20% off right now? Will that just saddle you with regrettable debt later on? Don't be fooled by crafty marketing and ploys on emotion. Get a psychologist's tips when we come back. Welcome back and good morning. Almost seven in 10 Americans say they're influenced by emotions when they buy things, according to LendingTree. 
I think I can relate. But I think, truthfully, I think most people do subconsciously. Well, yeah, and they make it so tricky when they say, you know, buy one, get one 50% half off. How do you pass that up, right? Yeah, so I spoke with Dr. Shannon Crawford, a psychologist and CEO of Crawford Clinics about this. I asked her what's driving this trend of emotional spending. Here's what she told me. That's a great question. So as humans, we are pretty much ruled by the limbic system, the emotional brain. So we tend to self-medicate and it's easy to see when it's drugs or it's alcohol or it's porn, but when it's spending, we're a little more protective and we don't always report how much we're buying things out of emotion rather than logic. They're literally different parts of the brain that are turning each other off. So which part is it, logic or emotion, that should primarily be influencing our spending? Hopefully logic. Hopefully you're engaging from the front of the brain, wise, smart brain that thinks strategically of not wanting to be in debt and not wanting 12 blouses in the same color. Or I just bought an expensive dog that was totally emotional over Thanksgiving because the Hallmark movies, the hormones, the emotions, I got nostalgia and now I'm like, what life choice did I just make? So we're all in this together, guys. Okay, so logic is super important here, but is there a way to create this emotionally compelling reason for us to start spending later on and, and as in to save our money now and not spend it impulsively? Yeah, so I think there's a couple rules that we can put in place. One, just like a breathalyzer, if you have an issue with drinking and you don't get in the car until you have your breathalyzer, like I think there's some safeguards that we need to put in place. Because I've worked with people that the fun of spending, a lot of people call it the shiny new thing, um, that wears off and now you're just left with debt and debt is painful. And so if I can visualize myself in the future and go, will future me really actually need this 20% off? You know, there's actual psychology behind all the ploys that are used in marketing, especially around the holidays, which obviously I just fell for as well, uh, that we can put some railings around our lives to say, okay, take a 24 hour pause. Uh, make sure that you're not doing this in a self-medicating or a fantasy. And that's what I did. I had got a puppy with my lifestyle was like the worst choice ever. So there's emotionally compelling reasons to put yourself in the future, the actual responsibility versus all the enthusiasm of emotion that hijacks logic. And we're actually operating out of the back of the brain. And then tomorrow I have to live with the front of the brain's consequences of what life looks like with that purchase. Those are all really good points that you make, and studies show that roughly 75% of millennials and Gen Z admit to actually spending emotionally. So why are young people more susceptible to this, and how do you break out of it? Well, partly, um, there's a, it's called a moral defense. It's just a stage of development where I don't really connect with the future, right? I haven't lived through enough life events of what does not having enough for a mortgage. What does it look like if there is a recession and I don't have this epically high paying job or whatever it might be. And so to live in the future and to have retrospect tends to come with age and maturity. And I would say that for any generation, not just Gen Z and millennial and all of those 
those. And so I would say if you can really do a good self-assessment, journal, process, talk to a friend, have accountability, especially if it's a large purchase, then you can now write out when would the lifetime be appropriate? When would it be fun? When would it be most meaningful in the long term and not just the immediate gratification that all of us, me included, have to resist? Well, thank you for this consultation on air. Dr. Shannon Crawford, psychologist and CEO of Crawford Clinics and also podcast host of Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. Thanks. Great and timely tips, I would say. And we are hitting the eight o'clock mark, so we will come back in one minute, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here's our top stories. Officials in Tennessee are assessing storm damage after tornadoes tore across the state, killing at least six people. Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell calls the destruction heartbreaking. Hamas terrorists say no Israeli hostages will leave Gaza alive unless their demands are met. Will Israel go for it? A journalist from Middle Eastern Affairs offers his take. A university president resigns after a backlash of criticism for her testimony about anti-Semitism before Congress last week. It's getting festive at the Vatican. The famed Christmas tree was lit in St. Peter's Square alongside this year's nativity scene. We look at makes this we look at what makes this year so special. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Monday. Today is December 11th. We're heading to today's top news. Officials in Tennessee are assessing the damage after tornadoes and strong storms tore across the state on Saturday. The storms killed at least six people and injured 50 more. Multiple buildings were also destroyed. Here's the story. Severe storms and tornadoes in Tennessee killed at least six people over the weekend and left a trail of destruction. One tornado was caught on video by an eyewitness as it moved over Madison, Tennessee, causing electrical flashes and an explosion. Oh my God. Video from Clarksville, one of the hardest hit areas, showed wrecked buildings and debris scattered along the road as slow moving traffic drove by. I hope nobody was in those houses. 
Officials said three people, including a child, were killed in Montgomery County, where Clarksville is located, and 23 people were being treated at the hospital. Three more deaths were reported in the suburbs of Nashville, according to the city's Office of Emergency Management. Police said a toddler was one of the three victims in the Nashville area. Heartbreaking day. Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell said emergency crews were still working to restore power. We have been working very closely with Nashville Electric Service. They are still trying to restore power to 26,000 Nashvillians. Their crews have been working around the clock uh, to get impacted Nashvillians back online as quickly as they can. In total so far, our responders have identified 22 structures that have collapsed as a result of the storm, and countless others have sustained significant damage. More than 40,000 people in Tennessee were left without power as of Sunday morning, according to the website poweroutage.us. Over in Gaza, Israeli tanks were trying to push further west in their battle against Hamas in and around Han Yunus today. Israel says the city is the main stronghold of the terrorists as Israel refocuses its war effort to the south. The Israeli military said Sunday that dozens of terrorists had surrendered to Israeli forces. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu discussed the Hamas surrenders on Sunday, calling it the beginning of the end for the terrorist group. Netanyahu urged more to hand over their guns and not die for Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. Meanwhile, fighting between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon is causing fears of the war spreading, and Syria's army reported it had shot down Israeli missiles fired toward the capital, Damascus, on Sunday evening. And on Sunday, Hamas said none of the Israeli hostages in their captivity would leave Gaza alive unless their demands for the release of all Palestinian prisoners were met. We take an in-depth look at this with Jonathan Spire. He's a journalist and the executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis. Jonathan, thank you for your time today. Would Israel be willing hello. to accept that deal, and hello to you, of releasing all Palestinian prisoners in exchange for all Israeli soldiers? At the moment, uh, it seems very clear that Israel would reject any proposal of that kind. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu told representatives of the Israeli hostages in recent days that in any case, no such offer of all for all is on uh, the table right now, while the fighting is still going on and much remains to be achieved militarily. But there are around 7,000 Palestinian security prisoners roughly in Israeli jails, including you know, people guilty of some very, very heinous terrorist crimes over recent years and even decades. And it is, in my estimation at least, almost unimaginable that the entirety of those people would be released in return for uh, the return of the you know, around 130 uh, Israeli hostages currently in the Gaza Strip. Very right. unlikely, I think. Yeah, historically, we have seen Israel go to great lengths even to get a single soldier, releasing over 1,000 prisoners mm -hmm. for that exchange back when. Now, do you think that the sure. Israel has to make a decision soon on these hostages in order to ensure that their safety is in order? My general sense is that the Israeli focus right now is on the military operation uh, from statements by Israeli officials regarding the uh, recent exchange of uh, around 110 hostages. The, the view of the government is that that became achievable because of Israeli military pressure on Hamas, which then made Hamas amenable to a uh, position making an agreement possible. 
So currently what uh, one hears here is that the, the emphasis is on the military operation, as your report said, successfully wrapping up operations in northern Gaza right now, the focus on Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. And at least from what I see right now, the focus of the Israeli uh, government right now is very much on advancing that military operation towards victory at the present time. Yes, Jonathan, and that military pressure by Israel did precede the actual negotiations that led to more than 100 hostages being freed in that aid and prisoner pact that we saw last month. Now, what do you think here? Israel is taking out Hamas leadership rapidly. Would there be a weakened Hamas in that case that would be more willing to get these hostages out, or would it affect that? That, I think, is certainly the hope of the of the government of Israel. As I said, right now, in, in the days we're kind of currently living through, the emphasis is on the military maneuver itself. But yes, uh, I would think, and I think we all here certainly uh, hope, that as that, uh, move, as that move, you know, advances towards greater success, then that may, the issue of the hostages may come back onto the agenda uh, at a certain time. At a certain point, of course, it has to come back onto the agenda. Israel, both government and people, have no intention of simply uh, abandoning, you know, roughly 130 uh, fellow citizens to their fate inside the uh, terrorist Hamas-controlled Gaza. So at a certain point, certainly it will come back onto the agenda. I think, again, the idea is that military success will then lead to the feasibility of hostage negotiations. What Netanyahu has told the hostage representatives is that right now, and he put it in the following terms, he said, according to what Israeli media have reported, right now Hamas is raising demands that not even you, meaning the hostages' families, would agree to. And the idea is that Hamas can be brought to sort of whittle down maybe some of its uh, demands as a result of military pressure on it as is currently taking place. Those are very stiff demands, especially considering the terms of the first deal that saw about 39 Israeli hostages being released for about 150 prisoners. Jonathan Spire, journalist and executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yemen's Houthi militia are warning all international shipping companies against dealing with Israeli ports. The group said on Saturday they would target all ships heading to Israel regardless of their nationality, escalating the risks of a regional conflict. The Houthis have attacked and seized several Israeli-linked ships in the Red Sea and its Bab al-Mandab Strait, a major global oil shipping route. The group also fired ballistic missiles and armed drones at Israel, which it says serve as support for Palestine. A Houthi military spokesperson said all ships sailing to Israeli ports are banned from the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. Israel called the attacks an Iranian act of terrorism. Iran responded by saying decisions made by its allies are made independently. The United States and Britain have condemned the attacks. Saudi Arabia has asked the United States to show restraint in responding to the attacks. Fallout from university officials refusing to condemn hate speech. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned Saturday. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the move, which followed a backlash of criticism for her Capitol Hill testimony last week. McGill will remain at Penn's faculty as a tenured professor at Penn Carey Law School and will stay on as interim president until a new interim leader is appointed. McGill had been under fire for months over her handling of anti-Semitism on campus. The final straw was her testimony before Congress last week, 
McGill struggled to answer questions about whether calls for genocide against Jews would violate UPenn's code of conduct. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. The exchange went viral and prompted a flurry of business leaders and donors to demand that McGill step down. And a bipartisan group of over 70 members of Congress sent a letter to board members of Penn, Harvard, and MIT on Friday. It demanded McGill and her counterparts, who also refused to give a definitive yes or no answer on the question, be removed. One mega-donor, Ross Stevens, threatened to cancel a massive gift, now valued at about $100 million worth of shares, if McGill didn't leave. McGill shared a video apologizing for her actions. I was not focused on, but I should have been. The irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. University of Pennsylvania Board Chair Scott Bach also resigned Saturday. Meanwhile, calls for the resignations of Harvard President Claudine Gay and MIT President Sally Kornbluth have intensified in the wake of McGill's resignation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, CVS has rolled out its new prescription drug pricing policy. Find out whether this will save you money during your next trip to the pharmacy. Elon Musk's social media platform X has restored Alex Jones's account. Find out why Musk moved to reinstate him after a permanent ban. And it's getting festive at the Vatican. The famed Christmas tree was lit in St. Peter's Square alongside this year's nativity scene. Find out what makes this year special. Good to have you back. And as you can see here with us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss CVS simplifying a drug pricing system. The CVS revamp may not help consumers much on prescription drug costs. So Don, what's the situation here? So, you know, last week I talked to you guys about how the revamp might help consumers, but I also want to say that we have to uh, keep our uh, expectations in check when it comes to how much this uh, new drug pricing system will actually help uh, lower prescription drug prices because uh, CVS's new system, which, uh, by the way, is called Cost Vantage, um, it's, it's not going to directly affect uh, buying drugs at the counter because uh, consumers are actually not directly involved in this process. Uh, cost Vantage is going to be between CVS Pharmacy, uh, the middlemen, and insurers. So even though uh, the, the new model will reduce the cost of most drugs, uh, savings will pass on to the negotiators first, which are the middlemen, and, and they uh, negotiate rebates from drug manufacturers to insurers. So it's going to be passed on to the negotiators first, and then uh, the middlemen, and then the insurers. So they're going to get the savings first, and then it's going to be up to them to decide how much they actually want to pass those savings onto uh, the end buyer. And by the way, there has been controversy 
about um, how much savings these negotiators ultimately pass on uh, to consumers uh, versus how much they want to keep for, for themselves. There's controversy there, um, and consumers' out-of-pocket costs uh, will continue to be determined by uh, their drug coverage benefits. I see. So basically, when it trickles back, by the, by the time it reaches the end consumer, there is not much left. Well, so what was CVS's goal, and why revamp the system? Well, uh, drug prices are uh, among top healthcare complaints for consumers because of just how high they are for some of these people. And then uh, the pharmaceutical supply chain is also under pressure uh, uh, from public officials and competitors as well because others have been trying to lower costs at the same time. So CVS might want to do something there. Uh, even its CEO has said they have to make changes because consumers have demanded it and the government has demanded it. Uh, the lawmakers uh, have harshly criticized the tra traditional system of how drugs are priced and uh, when you, with the middlemen and negotiators involved. There was actually a hearing on this exact topic earlier this year and there was a lot of denunciation on the current system um, and how much middlemen take a cut in terms of uh, the negotiations. But um, so it seems like CVS really had to do something uh, with the situation it's facing, but it remains to be seen whether it's actually going to help consumers or it's just lip service. Yeah, there is a really complex formula that goes into that pricing structure. Changing topics a little bit here, Don, Alex Jones was recently reinstated and social media platform X, and this is about five years after that InfoHose Info host, he had been permanently suspended. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's a very important topic uh, right now. The account ban dates back to when the platform was still Twitter. And Jones was banned because he made statements claiming victims of the Sandy Hook shootings were actors and that the government created the entire incident to take away gun owners' weapons. Elon Musk pulled ex-users to see if they wanted Jones' reinstatement. About 70% of around 2 million responders voted to restore the Jones account. Musk has tried to reassure users that advertisers uh, that such decisions would be made with the consideration uh, of a content moderation council. Since Musk took over the social media pl platform X, has re reinstated other previously suspended accounts, including that of former President Trump. Mm, yeah. yeah, and he was faced with a, over a billion dollar judgment for the defamation of these families after that rhetoric. Right. This is very serious. It is, and also that claim, wow, I remember that, what a claim. But thank you so much for your time today. Again, as always, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. And we're moving on to Javier Millet, who is the new president of Argentina. Some describe him as the Argentine version of former President Trump. The Economist takes over the role as Argentinians are desperate for change, battling extreme inflation, which affects the lives of millions. And today's Arian Pastor was in Buenos Aires on Sunday for Millet's inauguration. Around a million people were expected to be here in Buenos Aires, Argentina today to watch the inauguration of Argentina's new president, Javier Milei. Now, I spoke to some of these supporters and they tell me they have high hopes and expectations for their next leader. Take a look. Generations of corrupt politicians have been robbing from the people of Argentina. But Javier Millet brings us a new promise. He brings us happiness. Self-described capitalist Javier Millet won the election with almost 56% of the vote. 
His opponent had just over 44 percent. This is the widest margin of victory in a presidential race since Argentina's return to democracy in 1983. I want us to be clear. We are going to begin the rebuilding of Argentina after more than 100 years of decadence, but we must embrace the ideas of freedom. While we will have to endure a period of hardship, we will get through. There is no night that has not been defeated by the day. Before winning the election, Miley proposed radical ways to rebuild Argentina. For example, cutting government spending by abolishing certain agencies. Ministerio de las Mujeres y Género y Diversidad, afuera. Ministerio de Obras Públicas, afuera, aunque te resistas. This comes as Argentina is battling extreme inflation, affecting millions of people, as you can see in this graph. This Miele supporter put the graph into perspective. The U.S. currently has 7% inflation over an entire year. We have 12% in a single month. Our salaries don't keep up with this inflation, so all of a sudden you realize that the things you were able to buy before, you just can't afford anymore. Miele has promised to combat inflation, that's by cutting government spending, abolishing the country's central bank, being more open to using the U.S. dollar and more. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Malay, in his first act as president, slashed the number of his cabinet ministers in half. He signed a decree of necessity and urgency yesterday, similar to an executive order. The swearing-in ceremony took place behind closed doors, away from the press. Only nine departments were sworn in. Millet ran on a campaign platform proposing a so-called chainsaw plan, promising to drastically reduce the number of Argentina's government ministries. It's a cultural icon appearing in countless movies, videos and TV shows. The legendary Hollywood sign turns 100. To celebrate its 100th anniversary, a portion of the sign will be ceremoniously lit. The iconic sign no longer lights up at night. It used to have 3,700 light bulbs to show off the letters. The original sign in 1923 actually said Hollywoodland because it was an advertisement for a real estate subdivision. Over the years, the sign has become a must-see stop for tourists. Intrepid visitors can hike a trail up to the hill to get an up-close view of the sign. And the Vatican's famed Christmas tree was lit in St. Peter's Square over the weekend alongside the unveiling of this year's nativity scene. The nativity scene featured life-sized terracotta statues, including St. Francis of Assisi, who inspired the first living nativity scene some 800 years ago. The nearly 90-foot spruce was donated by Italy's northern city of Cuneo. It was decorated with thousands of nursery-grown Edelweiss, a white fountain flower native to the Alps. A local official said the tree had to be felled because it was at risk of collapse. The tree will be sent to a company that makes toys for children in need after the Christmas season Wow, I love that. Nothing going to waste here. Yeah, hopefully those kids will really get a lot of good use out of those toys. Yes. All right, on that positive note, we are wrapping up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.